0: Welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My guest today is Dr. Sergio Laporta, who is the Haig and Isabel Barbarian Professor of Armenian Studies at Fresno State, and also the Interim Associate Dean in the College of Arts and Humanities at Fresno State. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure um, to, to be here. Great. It's good to have you here. I wanted to talk to you uh, first a little bit about your background, educational background. Uh, you're a graduate of Columbia and Harvard, so tell us a little bit about that uh, background. What did you study in uh, college as, uh, for a bachelor's degree, and then what led you on into, um, into Armenian studies?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, thank you for having me here this afternoon. Um, I, I grew up in New York, uh, as you probably know and can tell by my accent, um, and I did, I did uh, apply for my undergraduate degree at Columbia University. I was attracted uh, to its core curriculum, Uh, That is similar to the uh, GE curriculum we have here, except that at Columbia it takes two full years of actually defined courses. So it's not that you choose from a selection of them, but that you had an actual course to take. Um, In that course, uh, my favorite one was Literature Humanities, uh, in which it was one year, uh, and it started with the Iliad, and it went all the way to the 20th century. We uh, finished with um, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, And my professor for that class uh, was Dr. James Russell. Um, And even though at that point he did not uh, teach me Armenian, um, I quickly uh, became uh, uh, his student and was interested in what he was teaching. I then went on uh, to study a number of different things as an undergraduate, including uh, Indian and Islamic studies, uh, studied Sanskrit. I went to England uh, for a year uh, to study that. Um, as well as Tibetan and and Pali, uh, and then came back and and finished up uh, with doing some Arabic and Islamic studies, uh, not quite knowing what I wanted to do afterwards. I went to the Hebrew University uh, for a year, uh, where I studied uh, early Christianity and and Second Temple Judaism. And uh, while there, um, Professor Russell said that I should take Armenian with Michael Stone, And I did, uh, with Michael Stone and Dr. Roberta Irvine, and I fell in love with the Armenian language, uh, the alphabet, as well as the the grammar of the classical language. Uh, From there, then, I I applied uh, to study with uh, Professor Russell, who was now at Harvard, um, uh, to do my PhD at Harvard in in Armenian studies. So that's sort of how I got into uh, Armenian studies, and, and then there, continued to work on, moved into medieval Armenian
0: studies. Well, when you were at uh, Columbia, uh, you said you, uh, you were taking courses. So these were sort of cohorts? Is that uh, the whole groups of students would do it, or you would just take yes. your
1: own? Yes. So the, wh- how it would work is that everybody in the college had to take the same classes, and, and it pretty much wound up being two full years' worth of coursework. So the major ones were Literature, Humanities, and Contemporary Civilizations. Each of those are uh, one-year courses, um, and they uh, they cover antiquity to modernity. Um, the first one, Literature Humanities, covers literature and uh, works of uh, aesthetics, uh, while uh, contemporary civilization also uh, started in antiquity but dealt with political philosophy. In addition to that, we had to take art uh, humanities, uh, music humanities, uh, foreign language, uh, three semesters of a science, um, and that you had more choice having I mean, with the science, as well as... Uh, um, at that time, I believe it was a year of uh, foreign culture um, or non-Western culture. The, the, the curriculum has changed uh, since I've been there in the decade since I've been there. But the, the mainstays of literature, humanities, and contemporary civilization, as well as art hum and music hum have stayed, have remained the same. The other ones have developed in different ways over the years.
0: Well, I, the students, when they start college, Probably don't ever think about 10, 20 years later what they're going to be yeah. doing, but what what was your ideas uh, when you just started college? What were you thinking?
1: Right, it was actually going to be international law or business, mm-hmm. and um, obviously uh, that's what my parents were also expecting. So things did, take, did, uh, did change. Um, and I, the core curriculum was absolutely essential in that. Uh, these were not classes, not, they were not necessarily all classes I would have chosen to have taken if it were left to me, but when I did take them, I, I really fell in love with them um, and decided to go off in a different tangent uh, because of them. So it was a real uh, eye-awakening experience, and it's one of the reasons why I'm such a fan of the, uh, these types of curricula, of, cor- um, of a core curriculum, and it also was particularly important because what it gave us all, was we were coming from, you know, a lot of people were from the tri-state area, but students came from all over the country and all over the world. And by making us take these classes together, uh, the classes had 20 to 25 students in them, but all 800 um, incoming students would be taking these classes almost at the same time. And uh, it gave us a way to speak to each other, um, in an academic context, because what we all had in common at that point was we were all reading the Iliad, um, or we were reading Plato's Republic, um, uh, or we were uh, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and this gave us a vocabulary, uh, a discourse that we could use between each other um, that uh, also helped us academically and intellectually and, 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 and spurred us on to um, continue to inquire further into these works. So it was a great experience. Um, that way, both intellectually and for forming these connections between uh, between people who had n- not necessarily known each other prior to coming to college. And
0: did you have an opportunity to uh, interact in, outside the classroom? What was student life like at Columbia in those days? I mean, I say those days yeah. when you were studying there.
1: Exactly, yeah. So this was, would be around 1990 to 1994 while I was there. New York was very different than it is today. Uh, it was still um, considered a dangerous city. It was just turning by the time um, we, we left Columbia, um, and so not a lot of people f- wanted to go there as they do today because the, the city was con- considered a little bit dangerous. But um, it was still a, a, a university in which you know, the vast majority of the students lived on campus. It was not a commuter campus. Um, even if you came from New York, you tended to live in the dorms um, you're, you're at least your first year or first two years. Uh, You then may um, find an apartment, might have found an apartment with some friends and and rented that on your own, uh, but definitely near campus. Um, And it was a a fantastic experience, obviously, to be able to go to university in New York City with um, all of these uh, extracurricular, so to speak, uh, opportunities being in the city itself, not just on campus, uh, but that you could go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, that you could go to the Metropolitan Opera House, you could go to the uh, uh, to all of the great museums and galleries downtown, um, as well as here. Um, Some of the greatest uh, thinkers uh, of the day and scholars of the day come to campus to give lectures, uh, be guest lecturers in in courses. Uh, So I think it was a very vibrant atmosphere. And to this day, you'll still see lots of students, maybe right now at this moment, but in general, uh, students hanging out in the quad and on the steps of Low Library, especially once the uh, the weather became nice. Um, and and it was a very uh, friendly place uh, uh, in that sense.
0: Uh, and so what was the point then? Uh, so it was after you got your bachelor's degree that you already decided, well, now I'm going to go into maybe some other types of more... Uh Classical studies, perhaps, or, or uh, not it wasn't Armenian studies yet. It wasn't Armenian it, studies yet, yeah, right. no,
1: right. So when I finished my uh, bachelor's degree, I still was uncertain as to what I was going to do. Um, but I did love to travel. I spent my junior year abroad in England at Oxford University, and while I was there, I was able to uh, travel uh, to the Middle East as well as to North Africa, and I wanted to go back there, and so I did. I applied uh, for a, um, a, a one-year program. Um, at the Hebrew University at the Rothberg School, which was for international students, uh, which was a great program. It allowed you pretty much to do... It was a non-degree program, but you could take any class that you wanted to uh, because it was non-degree. And it allowed me to explore uh, both uh, the area geographically, see, spend time in, in Jerusalem... Um, and in Israel, as well as visit Jordan and, and Egypt, um, and uh, take all any class that I wanted to, uh, both in the Rothberg School or the Hebrew University, if, it were, uh, if you could either handle the Hebrew or if it was given in English. And so that was when I was able to experiment um, with Armenian, as well as uh, take classes on Second Temple Judaism and early Christianity. Being in Israel, that seemed like a good thing to take uh, since you could actually see the places that you were talking about. Um, and that was a really fantastic experience um, and really um, foundational for me since after I finished my degree uh, at Harvard, I went back there to teach. And that was, incredible. that was an incredible experience for me to be teaching with the people I had studied with um, at, the, uh, at the Hebrew University while I was there. So that was incredibly satisfying and um, a remarkable experience. And they were really welcoming and supportive, so I'm really grateful to And them. when
0: you went to uh, Harvard to pursue the, the graduate degree, you, you said you got into more medieval studies. So yes. Armenian studies, of course, is a very broad uh, yeah. field with lots of disciplines. So how did you choose the topic that you did? Tell us a little bit about the topic for your dissertation. Sure. And then uh, how, what was it really that sparked the interest in, in that area?
1: So, yeah, that's a great question. And obviously I was working uh, with uh, Professor Russell, uh, and he uh, was working at that time a lot with Grigor Naragatsi. So the first thing we actually read together was uh, Grigor Naragatsi, which was incredibly difficult and a painful experience, but incredibly rewarding. Um, and uh, from there... Um, he thought that it would be interesting if I looked at the Iranian background to Grigor Tatavatsi's book of questions. He had been uh, looking at some of the questions and was wondering whether, you know, I would be able to explore the Iranian elements in Grigor Tatavatsi's book of questions. Um, I then started to read the book of questions and um, went on a, on a different tangent with that. Um, the third volume of uh, the book of questions. Uh, is is Grigor Tattavatsi's interpretation of Dionysius the Areopagite's theology. And I had studied uh, some of the uh, works attributed to Dionysius the Areopagite earlier uh, in my academic uh, journey, and, and I thought that this would be an interesting um, text to, to work with. And as I got into it, what I found particularly interesting was that uh, it seemed that, that Tattavatsi was working off of Latin texts to uh, interpret the Dionysian corpus, Um, and that indeed turned out to be the case. And so that opened up a whole new uh, vista for me on the relationship between the Armenian Church and the Roman Catholic Church, Um, and particularly it was interesting because Tatavatsi was known uh, to be uh, very much against the Latinization of the Armenian Church. Nonetheless, he was familiar with many works, and um, he incorporated some of their thinking into his into his own writing, um, nonetheless making sure that it conformed to the theology of the Armenian Church at the same time. So he was able to reform without losing the essence of Ar- Armenian theology. And uh, for,
0: for you, then, reading this text was what really captured you and kind of got you to go further into... Uh,
1: medieval Armenian studies, rather than maybe modern studies. Or- yes, and it was the incredible interaction that you had at that period in the in the in the 14th and early 15th centuries, and 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 the way it brought in the Mongol Empire, the Roman Catholic Church, the Crusaders. Even though the, he was living in, in the uh, period after uh, uh, the Crusaders. Uh, was when he was writing. But nonetheless, it showed all of these interactions between um, both East Asia and Western Europe coming together um, here in Armenia. Um, And it seemed to be overlooked um, to a large uh, extent uh, by other scholars. Um, And that was the other aspect, I think, that I really enjoyed was I did a summer program in in Yerevan uh, with Kevork Bardakshan, Professor Bardakshan of the University of Michigan, and working in the Matanadaran, um, just to see all of these manuscripts, um, medieval manuscripts mainly, um, and how beautiful but uh, and, and complex they were. Just I fell in love with that in particular. And to move beyond Tatavatsi to understanding what was the culture that created him, um, and also how did it change over time, particularly between the 10th and the 15th centuries. Uh, but uh, you know the normal history is that oh Armenia went through all of these invasions and it was a terrible period and it was very destructive and at the same time there were these beautiful things both built uh, in terms of the monasteries um, and written and there was obviously a a vibrant intellectual life and cultural exchange going on despite the military history that a lot of people are familiar with and that intrigued me that that sort of dichotomy between the the normal uh, diplomatic history that's presents this as a difficult military time, but you see all of this social and cultural efflorescence that I really enjoy.
0: And I think that's uh, actually a theme then that you have continued in the past 20 plus years of your career, because you've been involved in the Mediterranean seminar, yeah. uh, this idea of cross-cultural ties. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, as as where that research has taken you, and what have you discovered even more of in terms of people talk about Armenian culture, but uh, th- we we don't often understand that uh, every culture is dynamic and right. living, so it takes, takes and borrows and gives with other cultures. So maybe you can tell us a little sure. bit about that as well.
1: Sure. I mean, and that's one of the beautiful aspects of Armenian culture is that it's not static. It is incredibly dynamic. It's constantly reinventing itself, um, and it's based on not only rethinking its own uh, cultural history, but also through interactions with others, right? Armenians have been traveling uh, for, for centuries um, and interacting with others, especially where, they, where Armenia is geographically. It's always held a diverse population. It's always had uh, uh, ties uh, with the neighboring uh, uh, peoples, whether it's uh, mainly to the Iranian world, to the east, or to the Byzantine world to the, to the West and the, the Semitic world to the South. It's always uh, interacted with the various peoples uh, that surrounded it and um, been open to incorporating uh, other elements uh, within its own tradition. And, and we call it, they harmonize it. It's not pure copying uh, as any other culture. They reinterpret what they see. Um, they reemploy it in their own um, art, architecture, and literature. Um, And they give it new life in an Armenian idiom. Uh, And that's always exciting to see. Um, Yes, the Mediterranean seminar, remember when I was first getting involved in the Mediterranean seminar, I said, well, Armenia is not really in the Mediterranean. Uh, The olive does not really grow in Armenia. Armenia is too far north uh, for that. But, you know, Armenians don't really have access to the sea. They don't sail on a large number. Um, But they do have wine, and that, that, that may be good enough. Um, And what I discovered was that what we were talking about here were not necessarily specific characteristics such as these, but the idea of having an intensity of cultural interaction that does characterize the Mediterranean and similarly does characterize uh, Armenia. Um, in that you have people who uh, are constantly coming into contact with each other, negotiating with each other, trading, and I mean that not just for goods, uh, but also in terms of ideas um, and in in terms of cultural uh, artifacts, uh, so that uh, it is a highly dynamic and mobile society. Uh, Armenians are on the move often, uh, both within Armenia and outside of Armenia, and lots of people are also going through the trade routes um, through, uh, uh, through the region, pass right along Armenia some, and go into it. Uh, and so there are lots of people, uh, monks, um, spiritual people, Sufis in, in, in a period, m- merchants, uh, armies, of course, uh, are moving through that area. And all of that contributes to the vibrancy uh, of Armenian culture. But it also means uh, that we constantly have to reanalyze and reinterpret how we see Armenian culture, and that we have to be careful that we not always impose what we think it is on every period in time, but analyze it from from its own perspective and, and try and deconstruct what we what we may think it assume it to be, uh, but rather try to analyze it in its constituent parts.
0: And then it's probably is exciting to meet with uh, other colleagues in in the field in these seminars. So these seminars yeah. are actually bringing together uh, groups of colleagues uh, on common questions. Is that what right. it is? Tell us a little bit about... Right. So uh, the
1: Mediterranean seminar that was headed by um, uh, Brian Kotlos and uh, Sharon uh, Kinoshita um, was originally a UC project um, and now has spread um, not only throughout California but across the, uh, across the country. And scholars get together three times a year, uh, mainly medieval studies. The focus was always on the medieval Mediterranean, but we do go into the early modern period and back into late antiquity. Um, On uh, these issues, these problems of um, cultural interaction, whether it has to do with questions of uh, piracy and kidnapping, uh, whether it has to do with questions of identity um, and multiple identities, Uh, how do different uh, cultural actors um, represent themselves uh, in different contexts. Um, so these are questions that uh, people find all the time. What role does religion play in cultural conflict? Is it the instigator of cultural conflict, or is it just the language through which cultural conflict is often represented? Um, how does uh, class, uh, this is a big one, uh, what do you see? The differences between cultural relations amongst the elites is often very different from what we see amongst uh, the, the peasantry, uh, whereas intermarriage among elites uh, is often the norm. Um, It is often, at the same time, looked down upon uh, at different levels. And so analyzing these dynamics, uh, we see similarities across uh, different cultures, and we also see differences that help us uh, understand uh, whether what we're seeing is a specific phenomenon or is it a more general phenomenon. And so we get together three times a year, um, scholars with... um, Different different areas of I, Um Many are from focus on North Africa and Southern Europe. Others uh, focus on the Levant and the Middle East. Um, some of us focus on Armenia um, and Iran. Um, but we get together, and uh, each each seminar has has a question that it looks to uh, that it seeks to address, uh, as well as workshop papers, and that's the other great aspect of the seminar. So that each time we meet, we workshop three uh, papers from uh, students or uh, early career uh, uh, professionals that may be a chapter of a thesis, an article that's going to be published, or a chapter of a book that's being worked on. And they send it in advance, and we all sort of um, read it and, and, and question it. Uh, and then in a, in a friendly atmosphere, we get together Um, and and workshop these papers, and I've had that happen twice with me, and it's been an incredibly uh, fulfilling experience. It's some of the best feedback I've ever received on my work, Uh, so um, it's a really great experience, and I'm glad we're still doing it. At the moment, it's postponed, uh, but we're hoping to have it back in Fresno uh, in February of 2021. And usually you're holding them
0: every two years or every year you were trying to hold them? in oh, the Fresno? Sem- no, no, in general, the seminars. It's three
1: times a year. Three times a year? Three times a year. Okay. There's one in the fall, then one in the winter, and one in the spring, and it's at a different um, location right. each time. Uh, so Fresno has done it once before. In fact, right. we're one of the first ones in the post-UC period right. um, to, to host a seminar, and, and uh, since then they've been asking to bring it back, and we'll have the opportunity to do that in 2021. That will be great. Yeah, it will be fun. Uh, you've also been recently uh, teaching uh,
0: classical Armenian, which is kind of going back to your roots in the sense of what yeah. got you in, involved in Armenian studies. So tell us a little bit about uh, this program that was uh, teaching classical Armenian.
1: Sure. About, uh, I guess it's now almost four years ago, I was asked to um, uh, teach classical Armenian um, at uh, the Hill Museum and and Manuscript Library, uh, which is in Collegeville, Minnesota. Uh, The Hill has this amazing collection of digitized uh, manuscripts online that people uh, can work with. Um, They had been teaching uh, Syriac as a summer program already for a few years, and they wanted to expand into other languages, and they asked me whether it would be possible to do it for classical Armenian. And I said I I thought that would be a, a great idea. Um, and I asked Dr. Michael Pfeiffer of the University of Michigan uh, to join me uh, for a summer uh, to teach students classical Armenian. So it was a five-week summer program, intensive uh, classical Armenian in, in Collegeville, Minnesota, uh, at the uh, uh, at Saint John's University. Um, and we would work um, all day, an eight-hour day, teaching classical Armenian. We had ten students who were absolutely uh, phenomenal. Uh, we got to the end of the. F- we thought teaching them the alphabet would take the first week. And by the end of the first day, uh, they had managed to get pretty much all the alphabet. So Michael and I turned to each other and said, okay, what are we going to do now? Well, we moved rapidly uh, through the grammar book, Thompson's grammar book, uh, and we started reading as quickly as possible. And by the end of the course, we were looking at um, some of the digi- digital, uh, digitized manuscripts of the collection and translating them. Uh, So that was a a great experience. And towards the end of that that summer course, uh, the students asked whether they could have a follow-up session. And I should say that part of the requirements for uh, acceptance into the program uh, was that you could not have had any Armenian uh, prior to that experience um, and and secondly you could not get it where you were so these were students from universities that did not have Armenian so their fear was that when they went back to their universities um, you know not using Armenian on a regular basis that they would lose everything they had gained and so they wanted to have another year of Armenian and uh, in order to keep it up and whether we would keep it going through the year and uh, we said sure that'd be great and I talked to the uh, to the director of the hill uh, Father Columba about whether this would be possible and he said it's a great idea but um, Dumbarton Oaks um, Institute the uh, for Byzantine studies said that they would only fund the first year Um, they were just interested in people starting off and they weren't going to do a second year and the students then said, well, we don't want to come back to Minnesota. We actually want to go where there are Armenians. And so they actually said, we'd like to go to Fresno. Um, and I said, okay, we could do a f- program in Fresno in the summer. I reminded them it's going to be hot here. <laughs> uh, but they're nonetheless very excited. Um, I came back and I discussed uh, with you, Barlow, about the, po- uh, the possibility of hosting them uh, for summer. And uh, we did. We pulled it off and they came to Fresno for two, y- two weeks Uh, in the summer. Um, They stayed uh, in the dorms uh, at Fresno State. Um, They were very kind at the housing uh, department, where they actually hung a sign welcoming these students. Uh, And we called this the Fresno Institute uh, for Classical Armenian Translation. Uh, And Dr. Michael Pfeiffer came out as well and stayed with us for the two weeks. And um, we, this second year, uh, we had specific translation projects that the students needed to work on. So over the course, in between, the during the year, between the two summers, uh, we asked them uh, to pick um, pieces of Armenian literature that they needed to work on for their research, uh, whether it was for their thesis or whether it was for an article that they were working on, but something that was specifically relevant to their research. Um, and each one of them did, but it meant that we were covering literature from the 5th century to the 18th. So we did a part of Paustos, uh, we read some of Paustos and also some of Afrahat that was um, uh, tra- you know, written in the 5th century, as well as some uh, pilgrimage texts uh, from the 18th century to Jerusalem. So it was a wide scope of Armenian and everything in between. There was a wide um, uh, scope of Armenian literature, which obviously is, is a challenge uh, both for the students and for Michael and myself to teach that uh, in two weeks. But it was a great course. We did that. Um, we worked on the uh, translations that the students Uh, had prepared uh, workshopped them every day and um, at the end of that class uh, that of course they said so what are we going to do next year Um, and we're seeing they're going okay uh, that's great that's wonderful and after some discussion we decided there's only one place to go from there and that was to Yerevan Uh, so last year we brought the same group of students to Yerevan to work in the Matanadaran um, uh, again so that they could do research on their uh, specific subjects uh, we got them. Uh, the Matanadran was very welcoming um, and uh, hospitable, and they were up and working uh, fairly quickly after arrival. Again, it was a two-week program, but they were able to stay longer if they wanted to, but we had arranged housing for them for, for two weeks. Um, and it was a wonderful experience where they then got to meet a... Uh, uh, Armenians in Armenia, and, and we took uh, trips through Armenia so they weren't just stuck in the library all day, every day, um, and uh, we went on excursions, and so they got to learn firsthand um, uh, what the beauty of Armenian studies from a personal experience and not just from an academic one. Um, and it was a fantastic trip, and they all enjoyed it. They all fell in love with Armenia and, and can't wait to go back. We're hoping to meet again uh, this summer. Uh, that's not possible thanks uh, because of the coronavirus. Um, but we have stayed in contact with each other, and I'm looking forward to seeing them again as soon as possible. Um, and um, they are doing fantastic work. So this was a really great project to know that 10 students now are working with classical Armenian uh, texts. They're not armenologists. Most of them are not in Armenian studies. Nearly all of them are not in Armenian studies. Uh, They're in other fields, such as linguistics, um, Iranian studies, um, uh, uh, early modern history, uh, crusader studies, uh, Byzantine textiles. But these are all um, uh, students now who are conversant with Armenia and, and love to go back to Armenia. So we're really proud of of uh, that program and what we accomplished, and we hope to be able to do something like that again.
0: so it's probably significant in in a couple of ways. One is that uh, it does demonstrate the 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 necessity of knowing classical yes. Armenian for other disciplines or for other areas, and also that um, you're you're teaching ten people classical yep. Armenian where Probably if you look in the whole United States, uh, there's probably just a handful that are formally taking them at maybe Armenian studies programs. So these these are two very significant accomplishments or achievements. And
1: some of them have also now gone on to teach elementary Armenian to students at their universities. So it does have this effect of exposing more and more people. Uh, to uh, 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 to the Armenian language, classical Armenian, Armenian studies. And I have to say that during their two weeks here, too, I think they they received, you know, m- many of these students are, are just starting their thesis or about to embark on their thesis or, you know, somewhere, most of them were um, early on in their academic careers and to be able to to come here and, and um, work closely with us, as well as, you know, I have to say the president, President Castro, had them over to his house, um, and they got to meet members of the Armenian community, and they had a dinner, uh, they met the provost and the dean, um, and just becoming, just becoming part of academic life in a way that, for them, still in their early life, they hadn't experienced before, I also think was a great boost, and that they could see themselves now as uh, professional academics and not just as students. So I think, overall, it was great uh, for these individual students um, uh, in their own development. And also, I, I think it helped them develop this notion that there is a community dimension to academia, that we're not just in an ivory tower, that part of what we do is interacting Uh, with the community. That's particularly important in Armenian studies, um, but not just in Armenian studies. But I think it also lent that dimension to their education. Having that experience where they each gave a talk here um, they We had a talk where they each presented their research to the community, and then uh, they were able to interact with them, and the community asked them questions. And then again at the president's house, they met with other members of the community, that they see what they do is valued and uh, has an impact on the world around them. And I think that gave them also um, a big boost in how they saw themselves as academics and, and may even have changed their whole conception of what academia is and the relationship uh, to the world around them. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. really happy with that as well. Yeah,
0: it's been a great program. Now you've been uh, maintaining an active scholarly uh, life, meaning you've been publishing and and various kinds of things. But uh, recently you've been working on a, a new project, which is the translation of uh, the historian Revont, Is that right? Yes, right. right. Tell us tell, tell us a little bit about that. Who who uh, who this person was, the historian, and what's got you interested in that, and what are you doing with that?
1: So, yeah, Hevon is uh, our most important source, I would say, for uh, Armenia in the 8th century. It's our only real source for Armenia in the 8th century. And what life in Armenia was like um, uh, during the uh, the late Umayyad and early Abbasid uh, caliphates. Uh, It has been translated before into English, um, as well as more recently... Um, into uh, into French by Martin Martin out with the uh, assistance of Jean Pierre Mahe. Uh, it's an excellent translation. But uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Allison Vaca who's a professor of history at uh, the University of Tennessee Knoxville, um, and who knows Armenians, actually studied Armenian with me at the uh, at the Hebrew University, and then went on to the University of Michigan uh, to study Armenian with uh, Dr. Kevork Um felt that the approach to this uh, text has mainly been either from the perspective of uh, Armenian studies or Byzantine studies. And what has been missing is an approach that um, looks at the history within the context of caliphal history. And so what we um, started to do was provide a new English translation um, of the text uh, along with a commentary and reading notes. Now, the reading notes are meant there um, to help students who are reading the text understand the immediate context, who these people are, dates, reigns, um, um, rank. Um, but the commentary was is meant to do something different, and that is to pl- to place Ravond within um, the uh, Islamic historical tradition. That is, what does Ravid tell us? Right, that's either similar to what is said in the uh, Arabic uh, historical tradition, or different. And if it's different, why? Try to figure out why his perspective may differ. Now, most commentaries, or I would say notes to these translations, try to use text to corroborate evidence. That is, Ravond says this happened then, this Arabic historian says no, it happened then, which one is correct. Or they both agree, so that must be the correct date. And we're not looking at it from that perspective. That definitely is important, but what we're trying to figure out is why an Arabic historian may present the same um, historical event in a different manner from Revond, or, you know, why Revond may present it differently from the Arabic historian, and what, how they inform each other. That is, what is we as historians can learn uh, from the different perspectives of these authors. Right? The other thing that we wanted to do was make this a usable text. That is not just a, a, a translation that can be used um, only by scholars um, in their research, but also by teachers in the classroom. And for, particularly for those people who are teaching uh, Middle Eastern and Islamic history, um, how they can use this Armenian text to help their students understand what's going on. And you know, obviously, Armenian uh, histories are very important um, for understanding the history of the region, right? They give a very uh, they they have a unique perspective, uh, but they tell us about things that no other history, uh, no other none of the other histories do. The major problem I would say for most teachers and scholars is that they don't know how to use them in a classroom setting because it requires so much background information about the author, about the historical context, about what is uh, uh, about Armenia that they're not able to effectively incorporate even when you have a good English translation of an Armenian history into their lectures or into their classroom discussion. And so they'll most likely say, ah, there's an Armenian text on this, you know, go read it on your own or or study it. And so one of the goals that we have with this translation is not just to have an English translation that people can read, but also have guidance uh, for the teachers to be able to use the, the history to really explain Islamic and Middle Eastern history in a more general context and we hope that more people will be able to uh, follow that method uh, when doing their translations, that this is not just about accumulating facts, but also helping teachers use these works in the classroom and expose more and more students um, uh, to their import. So, yeah, yeah no, um, we're we're moving along with that. Uh, we we're also part of another joint project. One of the pieces of um, uh history is the letter of um, the Emperor Leo um, to the Caliph uh, Umar II about the truth of Christianity. Um, and now we there. this letter, not this particular one, but the correspondence between Umar and Leo has been preserved in different languages, um, including uh, Latin, Arabic. Um, the Armenian is actually a translation originally from Greek, so it originally existed in Greek, um, and in Al-Hamiyado, uh, which is... Um, Spanish um, written in Arabic, a right? type of Spanish written in Arabic, and so these um, uh, these we, we have a group of scholars who have come together to uh, create a synoptic edition. That is having all of the texts and translations, uh, the Arabic Christian, the Arabic Muslim, um, as well as the Alhamyado, the Armenian, um, and, and the Latin versions together in one in, in one volume, um, so that uh, people will be able to. Uh, examine them all together and this has been great in the process uh, the team found the earliest copy of the Latin version which goes back to the 9th century 9th to 10th century which mm-hmm. means it's about the same time in, uh, there's been some question as to whether the version in, in, in Revond was um, there when he composed the text at the end of the 8th century or whether it was incorporated later um, we actually believe it was there, part of the original text, and um, it, it shows that this correspondence really did exist at an early period in the entire Mediterranean. Uh, now, none of them are copies of the others; they all have different uh, takes on this correspondence. Uh, but it, uh, it 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 really does demonstrate um, how that Mediterranean world uh, was connected um, through uh, this. Sort of idea of this correspondence of Wummar and Leo.
0: I'm going to change it up a little bit. I'm yeah. going to ask you. Um, you you've been, uh, started teaching here at Fresno State in 2009,
1: I believe. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah,
0: So it's almost a decade. Yeah, it's yeah. decades go by, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'd like you to uh, tell us a little bit about uh, maybe just your experiences teaching here, and uh, maybe some comparisons about uh, in general or in, in specific ways the between your your experiences at other universities teaching and. Tell right. us a little bit about about what you've been doing, and you know, in terms sure. of teaching and uh, being at a four year college, or university.
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah, Fre- uh, I had never been to Fresno uh, before uh, uh, taking this position here. So in prior prior to teaching at, uh, at Fresno State, I taught at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, um, which is also a, a, a public university, but it's a very different system. Um, a very different, obviously, uh, student body. I mean, it's in a different country, and m- many, if not, you know, most of the students had done military service before getting to the university. Um, so it was a, a very different experience um, in in that way. Uh, but the uh, teaching at Fresno State, I think, it, it what is remarkable is, you know, first of all, how um, ready the students are. I mean, they're really a great. Uh, student body—they um, are, uh, you know, really nice and polite. I mean, as individuals, they're just uh, they're for the—they're generally great human beings, um, and they do have uh, an inquisitiveness. They want to learn. Um, most of them realize that this is a great opportunity for them. Uh, Fresno State does a, a, a tremendous job um, in uh, educating its students. Both through the the GE curriculum and then in the particular majors, um, I think that's why we're nationally ranked so highly. I mean, we take people who are first generation college students who come from challenging socioeconomic backgrounds, um, and we transform them um, uh, and move them up uh, social up the social ladder. And I think that is an incredibly satisfying. Um, experience that you're not dealing with students who are jaded and seen it all and, like, traveled all over the world and then they're just here biding time, uh, but really the, they're students for, who see the value and are um, really uh, – you can see them awake. You can see them light up uh, when they start to figure out uh, how new these uh, – what they're being exposed to and how exciting it is. And that's always uh, incredibly, I would say, um, satisfying – uh, it was also a surprise. Usually you do not get 32 students for an Armenian studies class. I mean, that is just not the case, right? And mm-hmm. the classes that I taught here, all the lower division ones were filled to 30, 32 students. Um, the upper division ones also were, uh, were filled like the history course or the Armenian 148 for Armenian literature with 30 students. Um, and when I first came here, I thought... Okay, we'll get we have a large Armenian population, so I'm gonna have classes of Armenian students and that's how we can work. And I get into the classroom and I realize half the class may be Armenian or of Armenian descent somehow, but at least half the class isn't. And that continued through my career, noticing that, you know, often over half the class is not Armenian, sometimes seventy five percent. And when I first came I had a lot of assumptions of what people would know about what it is to be Armenian, mm-hmm. thinking that the class would be filled with Armenians. And to be then faced with a group of students, many of whom had taken the class, they said, well, I had an Armenian friend or an Armenian neighbor, or I went to an Armenian restaurant, and I don't really know anything about this, but I was interested in it. Um, had, I had to totally rethink the way I taught these classes, and, you know, how do you teach... Um, not only Armenian literature and Armenian history, but then world literature and world history through Armenian literature and Armenian history, because this does count towards their general education, and they are uh, meant to learn um, something more than just the specifics uh, of the class. And um, that was a challenge at first, but one that really became uh, fulfilling, and uh, I learned a lot uh, by doing that, because then I had to rethink how I taught these classes. I had been trained with Armenian studies as a graduate degree. And so it was always heavily language-based and that you're working on very specific texts, um, very specific questions. And then to, to have to retool that so that now you're dealing with a general education class in which you fit Armenian history and culture into this much broader narrative um, and make it relevant to everyone um, I think uh, it was a great experience for me personally and something uh, that, I, uh, that I enjoyed uh, what, after I got here having to do that and, and enjoyed continuing to do that. Um, and in addition,
0: in addition to all this now, uh, so in the fall, you took on a new challenge yeah. as the Interim Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and briefly some of the challenges and maybe some of the you know, uh, unexpected and interesting things that, that you've already uh, faced
1: Sure, yeah. Um, so, yes, it has been a challenge. It is n- not something I had uh, pictured when I had started academia that I would wind up in a dean's office. Um, obviously, uh, our our previous dean, um, uh, who is now provost, uh, Dr. Saul Jimenez-Sandoval, and now our interim dean, Nora, Dr. Nora Chapman, who was the associate dean prior to me, uh, were fantastic um Leaders of this college. And when um, Saul moved up to the provost's office and, and Nora became the uh, interim uh, dean, um, to become part of that team was a special moment, I think, for me. I don't think I would have done this if it hadn't been for the fact that they were in those uh, positions and knew that we shared a vision for the College uh, of Arts and Humanities that really. Uh, saw the significance of both the arts and the humanities within the university. It's the heart of the university that we are creative and thoughtful and insightful, and what really makes a university student is that training in the arts and humanities in addition to whatever then they go on to major in. And so knowing that that support was there and that vision was there, it made the decision to uh, become the interim associate dean um, a lot easier. Having said that, there were a lot of challenges. Uh, the emails um, that uh, you constantly get all times of the day um, and, of course, being new to the position, sometimes not knowing the answer and having to quickly figure it out. Um, and uh, that, that, is, that has been a challenge. And now, of course, we've had the, the, the new challenge of the coronavirus Um, And moving uh, entirely to remote teaching, that's been a challenge for everyone that we're facing. I'm really proud of uh, our faculty and our students who seem to be managing really well under the circumstances. For some people, obviously, this is a greater challenge than for the others. If you're doing sculpture, uh, in music, uh, where you thrive on this interaction and actually need a physical presence, um, we know that this has been very difficult. Uh, but uh, we are relying upon the creativity of our faculty and the resilience of our students to get through this, and so far they've been doing a fantastic job, and, and we are very proud of how they've been handling this tense and anxious uh, this anxious moment. Um, so that points to the positive side of the job of realizing and seeing fully how all of our faculty really step to up to the plate and how they help our students and not just you know I'm familiar with what we've done here in Armenian studies and our students but to see that across the campus and across our college uh, and how much of a difference that each of our faculty members are making in the community and with our students and how involved they are and how well I mean we just have some really fantastic students and and particularly when you consider sometimes where they have come from and what they've accomplished uh, in their short time here Um, It's truly amazing, and it's remarkable. And that being able to help that um, and foster that environment is incredibly satisfying. All the meetings we have to go to, that can be a little bit (laughs) sometimes tiring, Mm -hmm. uh, but keeping the vision and keeping people motivated and and making sure that our students succeed, uh, that to me has been uh, been an incredible part of this new uh, experience for me. Uh, working on helping students find internships, working on our study abroad, which, of course, obviously this hasn't been able to go this year, um, uh, but making sure that uh, all of our students feel like that they belong at, at Fresno State, because they do, um, I think that that has been a, a, a remarkable aspect of this.
0: My guest today has been uh, Dr. Sergio Laporta. He's the Haigen Isabel Barbarian Professor of Armenian Studies at Fresno State and also the Interim Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Humanities. Thank you for joining me, Sergio. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.